Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and this is FT Startup Stories. Before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to let listeners know we have a live startup event taking place in London on November 22nd. Come to the FT for drinks and discussions with me and a collection of inspiring entrepreneurs who'll be talking about what it takes to build a business. For more information and tickets, please go to ft.com forward slash startup engage. Tujay Bulu worked with the UN on poverty alleviation and microfinance before becoming a strategy consultant, helping US and UK business clients with international expansion. It was then that she had her bright idea. The key problem there was there's not enough good data. So I have a client who wants to invest more in Nigeria, India, Azerbaijan, and they tell us that, okay, this is great, this is a great opportunity, can you tell us what is the size of the market? How much should we invest? And we're like, oh, we don't know, because there's no data. So that was the aha moment, really, because given my background in development work, and then you are seeing the global businesses desperately need to know more. If they know more, they are less anxious, If they are less anxious, they can make confident investment decisions and create more employment opportunities in these countries, put more marketing money into it, and it's a win-win for everyone. But what really closed the circle then was, how can we use technology to do this? Because at that point, what I saw is there was a tea project. It's a very famous tea brand, which wanted to increase their market share in a couple of big tea drinking countries. We went to a traditional market research company to provide the data, and then my company would provide the strategy on it. They said it's going to cost half a million pounds to collect the data we needed. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And it's going to take eight weeks. And this is a very prestigious research company, right? We're like, okay, we respect, but your price is unaffordable. Your timelines are making it today inaccessible. So what are we going to do? And the project died. The tea company didn't make the investment. And about a couple of weeks after that, I left my job to start Street Beast. What I knew was there are people on the ground. If we had a way to reach them, they would happily provide this data, like taking a photo of their teacup, taking a video of how they are making tea, or going to a store and taking a photo of the shelf. But I also knew was that there is now mobile technology which allows us to direct the right question to the right person in the right place. And that completely transformed the basis of market research. And this is because you can use a phone to know where someone is and what kind of person they are maybe as well. Exactly. So it's a combination of the two things. First of all, we introduced the idea of paying people for their contribution. 
And the mobile geolocation technology is allowing us to have that level of access to people. Imagine an 18-month-old company had half a million users like this. Why? Because we got thousand people in Indonesia through different digital media channels. The first person who does the task, which was basically taking photos of their laundry, that was it. We were working with uh, the world's largest manufacturers of laundry products, and their first mission they gave us was basically to show us how people do laundry in Indonesia. We want to get like rich materials here. It was incredible. We got women at the age of 55 by a river using the soap that this manufacturer produces and using the river water. And I have a video of that. You effectively had access to an enormous staff of people with their phones taking videos and pictures. But how much did it cost to sort of get get the thing off the ground? Yeah, Yeah. it was very little actually in the beginning because we didn't have any cash. So with no cash, how are we going to build a business that has access to 87 countries? We said, well, there's WhatsApp. It's free to access people. There's SurveyMonkey, which is free. And then we used PictoCharts and WordPress to create primitive versions of a dashboard. Everything was free. Only thing we needed to pay was people's labor. If you are contributing data, but then the client is paying for it anyway. So there was actually a good cash flow model as well. Absolutely, yeah. We had to allow a month's cash flow, so 30-day cash flow liquidity, but there was quite small amounts. I personally managed to finance that. And for the first six months, we got no investment whatsoever, and we were already operating in 15 countries. I worked with Warner Brothers, which was one of my first clients. Then we worked with Innocent Smoothies all across the UK. Then Unilever picked up the idea. They loved it. They gave us so much support from real client work. Then we got the confidence, okay, now let's get some cash to grow this. So you did a funding We did, exactly. And what kind of people are we talking about here? Were these angels or were they... Yeah, so you know Robin Klein, maybe? Mm. So Robin was our lead investor in the round. We met Robin and we told him about our vision and like what we are dreaming of here. And he got super excited. He got as excited as we are, basically. And then he got involved in the business. And then he introduced us to a number of other people, including angel investors. And we were only thinking of raising a small amount of money. But then we realized, actually, you know what? Why are we shying away? The market is loving this. The users are loving this. Let's not wait. Let's put our weight behind this and roll out. And our round was oversubscribed by six times. So we were super lucky to like cherry pick our investors. And Octopus Ventures, which is a VC fund, also joined the round as a lead investor. So they are currently in our board. And then a number of angels, including the founders of Innocent Smoothies. It gave us a great starting point. Then, though, you had to expand very fast. Yes. What did that cause for you and your sort of relationships with the investors? That was quite interesting because they are very experienced with startups and international expansion. And I'm not. So they told us, why don't you focus on one country? Your home country is UK. Get the model right. And then you can start rolling out that model. That didn't work for us because data by its nature is something you buy with multiple countries. When Unilever comes to us, Unilever tells us, Tucci, I need these people's snacking habits. And here's a list of 20 countries. 
can you provide this consistent and standardized data for me from these 20 countries? If I tell you, you know, ever, oh, look, my solution is amazing, but I can only do this in the UK. They're like, okay, but that doesn't work for us. Then I have to, as the client, find a partner in each country that's going to multiply the amount of time I need to spend by 20. The data will come in different formats. It won't be standard. It can't be compared. It doesn't work. Any market research has to come at an international level if it's good quality data. So there was a difference of opinion. These people have got the money. How do you overcome that? Absolutely, they have the money, but they gave the money to the business because they trust our sense and they trust our ability to make decisions. And I think that's why it becomes very important to choose your investors very carefully. We didn't simply say that, I'll leave it with us and we'll be fine. We explained to them that this is the way market works. Then the discussion was around, can you reduce the number of countries? Do you really have to be in 87? This is population-wise about 85% of the world. And can you do 15 countries, 20 countries? We said, no, we can't because we have a mission here. StreetBiz is the world's intelligence platform. If you're calling yourself that, you need to be able to make the data accessible across the world. So our point was that when a client comes in, they write their questions, they choose their countries, no matter where it is, we will make that data affordable and accessible. Now, if I don't have the operations because I'm a tiny business, I'll find a partner, but I will control the quality. In some countries, we will have a deeper population. In some countries, it's gonna be a bit harder. In some countries, we will lose money because we don't have enough people. But what that will teach to the market is that we are the world's intelligence platform. And in five years of time, we will have lots of people in every market and it won't be a problem anymore. I suppose you can understand their concern when you talk about numbers like 87 countries. What does that mean, being in 87 countries? That's a very good question, and the answer to that question is what made it possible. We don't have employees. All our employees are in London, but the world has changed. People now like doing extra little jobs. If you go to our community-facing website, all it says is, do what you love. You have a full-time job that pays your rent, that pays your bills, and you do little tasks with street bees, and it's the honey money, it's extra. What we discovered is there's a group of people like this in every country who can on demand work with us, help us, help us with translation, transcription, manage the field, find us more bees, etc. Or simply participate in a task. Just take a photo of their teacup. Takes one minute, gets paid $5 for that. So that made it possible to be able to expand to all those markets without having to incorporate a company, employ people on the ground. And the other thing I should really give probably credit to is systems like WhatsApp and PayPal and Facebook. That's what made it possible because without having an office, without having a bank account in the country, we were able to pay people on the ground. We were able to communicate with them. We were able to target them with advertising. It feels like with a freelance economy, you do have to have a degree of trust in people. Technology solves that. For the actual data contribution, we built systems which automatically identify someone who is trying to cheat. In some of the countries we went in, because we pay such good money for data, people started creating fake accounts. 
And what we did is we introduced phone number verification. So every phone number can only register once, but you might have multiple phone numbers. To stop that, we introduced geolocation checks. So if you register from the same geolocation, a couple of minutes after each other, we flag your account as suspicious activity and you get a phone call from us to make sure it is not suspicious activity. If we see two photos from two different kitchens, which are too similar in our opinion, we give you a phone call to check that. What we saw though, in time, we don't need to do that because people self-select themselves out. The guys who stay in, make good money, we trust them, they trust we will pay, we trust that they will be, give us good data, and the system grows. Thomas Hellman teaches entrepreneurship at the University of Oxford's Said Business School. I asked him for his view on the prospects for gig economy startups, some of which have raised huge amounts of money, in the case of Uber, partly to finance legal costs. The amounts of money raised by Uber are a function of several things. You mentioned the legal cost. I mean, I think the aggressive first-mover strategy is probably even more important. They are trying to simultaneously dominate markets in virtually every country in the world, in every city, and in principle, you have to win city by city. So they are incredibly aggressive in establishing a first-mover advantage because the business model is one of a network, and we know that the properties of network is that they tend to be winner-takes-all markets. This is a new and potentially extremely efficient way of delivering economic value, but it requires an adjustment because it does involve some new employment issues. And I think there, frankly, because this is a big phenomenon, it's going to take us several years to find the right balance. What Streetbees is doing is working in a niche market. They're looking at a particular set of skills and services that are much more selective. And in fact, there's much more differentiation. So, I mean, you know, transportation or accommodation are fairly standardized. What Streetbees is doing is not as standardized. I think that's good in the sense that they may be able to really deliver a very high-value service. Being differentiated will probably dominate a particular niche and provide enormous economic value, but it doesn't have the scale economies of an Airbnb or Uber. Back to Tuche. Was there anything she would have done differently with hindsight? We did try opening offices too early and closed. Where was that? Istanbul, home country. We thought it could be just very similar, like we can manage some of the community out of Istanbul rather than out of London, because geographical proximity makes it easier. They can also make sales as well. It would be like a small model of exactly what we are doing here, except for technology. We keep technology and product development here. But very quickly, within three months or so, we realized that that's a bad idea. Our infrastructure wasn't ready for remote employees to fully integrate into the business. We couldn't support them well enough and they couldn't deliver what they were supposed to. Client satisfaction. To me, that's the most important thing. You can't fix anything else. You can't fix if your clients are not happy, right? There was only one client which basically said, Tuch, I worked with you before, I worked with your London office, but this time we felt like we just could have moved faster. I'm like, fair enough. We need to take you back to London now. And that's exactly what we did. We basically um, dispersed the office in Istanbul. We moved all our Turkish clients to be managed out of London. And we moved on. So what I would say to founders is don't rush opening new offices in new locations. There's so much you can do without actually opening an on-the-ground physical space. 
Next time, we talk to an entrepreneur with a mission to bring healthy food to the workplace and hear about the technology hurdle that nearly sank his business. In the meantime, you can catch up on previous episodes by going to our special page, ft.com forward slash startup. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.